Chapter Seven of The Other Side of the Door by Lucia Chamberlain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Chapter Seven The Refuge. I could not tell how long a time had passed, but gradually, out of complete consciousness, grew up the sense of a wretched throbbing. I thought it was my head. I opened my eyes and found I was looking straight up into the sky. I lay staring at it. It was so wonderfully soft and blue. Presently the wind swayed a green branch into my line of vision. At sight of that the query of where I was came into my mind. I moved my head and felt the crackle of twigs at my cheek. I was lying in a mass of ivy and lemon verbena bushes. And at one side of me rose the great face of a wall. The memory of what had happened returned. I scrambled to a sitting posture. My head was so dizzy that I had to catch at the bushes to hold myself upright, and my body felt sore and shaken. But the impulse to get away from the house, whose windows overlooking the convent wall still spied upon me, carried me to my feet. Through the shrubbery, I peered at the garden beyond. There was a level green lawn with sedate paths marching around it, but no black hooded figures were moving there in ones or twos or in solemn file as I had been wont to see them. I walked rather uncertainly forward across the grass, across the dank and mossy paths, and into the shadowy length of the corridor. This too was empty, and at one end of it, a little door with a grill across it. Seemed as effectually to bar me out as the Spanish woman's house had shut me in. In my dazed state, the only thing I could think of doing to call the attention of the place to my presence was to seize the grill in both hands and shake it with all my weakened strength. It made quite a rattling, and then I heard hurrying feet, and presently the small, startled face of a nun peered through the grating. I want to see the Mother Superior. I said in a trembling voice. She looked at me sharply, and I thought, a little as if she were frightened. Why didn't you ring the bell? She asked. The bell? What bell? I stammered, for the only bell I could call to mind was the bell the Spanish woman had rung. Then, as the sister appeared to be about to draw back, "Oh, please, please!" I cried. "Take me to the Mother Superior. I am in great trouble." There was a pause, then little rustling, then a whispering of voices behind the grating, and another face, rounder and larger than the first, peered out, and a more sympathetic voice said, "Poor little creature, and her hat is all on one side." Then, after some further deliberation, in which one of the voices seemed to be protesting that it was afraid of something, the nun who had come first disappeared. I could hear the sound of her feet hastening away, and the second opened the grating and drew me in. She led me down a narrow, musty-smelling hall into a dull little room where she made me sit down and put my hat straight and smoothed my hair very kindly but rather clumsily with hands like white pincushions. At last, with the timid nun following furtively at her heels, the mother superior came. She was a thin woman in flowing robes, with a great white sheer quaff around her delicate face, and she looked at me very kindly and benevolently, 
while I stammered out the essentials of my story, how the Spanish woman had tried to keep me in her house, and how I got out of the window and through a hole in the wall and so down into the garden. When I came to this point in my tale, "'But those windows are closed up!' cried one of the nuns. "'And the wall is eight feet!' cried the other. "'And there is no hole in it. It would be impossible!' The mother superior shook her head at them and said to me, "'Can you tell me where you live, my child?' I thought it odd that there should be any doubt in her mind as to that, but I eagerly gave her the number in the street. "'And if you will only send for a carriage,' I said, "'because I am afraid I am too tired to walk, I should like to go home.' "'It will be best to notify your parents,' she said in a soothing voice, and they will fetch you away. But there is no one there now except Abby, and she is lame and very old. Father is not in town. He will not be back until night, and I can perfectly well go home alone. I was beginning to feel desperate, as I thought I never should get out of the place. She smiled and said, Well, we will see. Give me your father's name. She looked surprised when she heard it, and not quite as if she believed me, but all she said was, Now you must lie down and rest a little while before you go out. I protested that I did not feel tired, and indeed my anxiety to get away had wiped out all memory of my bruises. But in the end I had to follow the round-faced nun up the bare cement stairway to another small room. It seemed strange after the luxurious glooms of the Spanish woman's house to be in this bare, whitewashed place, where all the light fell unobstructed through little narrow windows placed high up in the walls. There were no mirrors here, not one, to reflect one's figure, and it was only when I had taken off my hat that I discovered what a wreck it was, crushed absurdly out of shape, and my hair was half down. The nun helped me to unwind and brush it out, and I heard her murmuring at my back. When I was young my hair was as long as this. And then she coaxed me to lie down on a little bed. I felt her cover me up, but when she tried to make me drink something from a glass, a hideous memory sprang in my mind, and I had struck and knocked the glass out of her hand before I could think what I was doing. I heard her muttering anxiously to herself as she picked the pieces up, and then I was left alone. With confused puzzles moving through my mind I lay there tense, feverish, tossing, each moment expecting someone to come and tell me I could go home. Finally I seemed at last really to be going. The only trouble was that the nuns told me I could not leave unless I left as a bride, and they had no satin and no orange flowers. I was startled out of this fancy by voices sounding loud upon the edge of my dream. One said angrily, in the first place you ought never to have taken her to that infernal house, either for the sake of getting evidence or any other thing. The second retorted, Well, I wanted to keep her out of the whole business. It was you who insisted on dragging her in, and once you get into this sort of thing difficult situations often present themselves. My eyes opened wide, and in the faint light of the floating candle flames just above me I saw Mr. Dingley's face. "'You weren't there. Why weren't you there?' I said, sitting up. "'You see,' a woman's voice that I thought was the Mother Superior's put in, 
She says and does such strange things that I dared not let her go out into the street alone. Then, with an unutterable sense of relief, I recognized Father's voice. Yes, that was quite right. She was better here. And he sat down on the edge of the bed. Oh, take me home, I cried. He smiled and said, with that same exasperating sort of reassurance which the mother superior had used, Yes, we are going immediately. They all made me feel as if they thought that I didn't know what I was talking about. Either everyone is crazy, I thought, or the whole world is in some plot against me, and they have deceived father, too. Of course, my mind knew that to be ridiculous, but everything conspired to make familiar people strange. What was it Mr. Dingley had been telling father just before I returned to consciousness? Perhaps after I am alone with father at home, I can get him to listen to what I want to say, I thought. But there were many reasons why this undertaking was much more difficult than I had supposed. In the first place, it was Mr. Dingley who began by asking me where I had gone. He had been waiting in the front hall for me all the while, he said, and how had I got out without his seeing me? He had hunted all through the rooms on the lower floor, and not finding me, had gone back to our house, supposing I had returned, and from there had set out in search of me. It sounded very reasonable, and I was at a loss to understand why it didn't seem probable to me. Then when we reached home, we found a person waiting, a detective Mr. Dingley had sent for, and to him and to Mr. Dingley as well as to father, I had to tell my story. It came out in bits and snatches, with questions and answers, Mr. Dingley's all mixed in with mine, and when they did let me speak uninterruptedly, I was so excited that the words came tumbling out, all confused. It seemed to me, too, that father was much more anxious over the fact that I was feverish and had a lump on my forehead than the fact that the Spanish woman had offered me that glass of wine and then said I should never leave the house. But he said the thing should be investigated, and Mr. Dingley said something about making inquiries tonight, and finally all three went out together, leaving me in a wretched state of anxiety and doubt. It seemed to me that none of them at all understood the situation, and it was so wonderfully clear in my own mind, so enormous and astounding in its menace, that I was woefully puzzled to see how they could have missed it. But I was to learn no more until the following day, when, lying in bed stiff and sore, with every muscle in my arms and shoulders aching, father came in with that unwontedly grave and puzzled face that the poor dear had worn so often since the beginning of the whole miserable experience. The detective and police had been to the Spanish woman's house, he said, and had interviewed her. She had told them quite frankly that she had indeed sent for me to come to her, and had implored me not to give the evidence which I was expected to give because she said she fully believed it to be false, that the pistol I had thought I had seen in Johnny Montgomery's hand must have been a fancy of mine, and that she could not bear to have such damaging testimony given so recklessly. She had thought, so she said, that being a woman she might perhaps know better how to elicit the real facts of the case from me, since the men, lawyers, police officers, and even my father, might very well have frightened away my memory by their manner of going about it. But when I had been so obstinate, she said, she had lost her head and become angry, and that it frightened me. 
She said she had tried in every way to reassure me, but I had resisted all her offers of hospitality, and finally, becoming hysterical, had struck a glass of wine which she had offered me out of her hand and rushed out of the room before she could stop me or even discover why I had so suddenly fled. Mr. Dingley, father went on, had explained that he had been waiting for me, as he had said he would, downstairs, but at the moment when I had come he had not been in the sala. I could only stare at father. These didn't seem to be at all the same experiences which I had been through so short a time before, and yet when I considered I couldn't contradict a thing. The incidents were there, but somehow they all sounded perfectly harmless. I felt bewildered. Besides these mild-looking facts, my actions seemed those of a madwoman. Furthermore, father went on, Mr. Dingley had said that when he went through the sala afterward searching for me, the windows had been closed and locked fast, and the police had declared there was no hole in the convent wall, and that the wall itself would have been a difficult drop even for a man. I pounced upon this as a tangible fact. Then someone in the house must have closed and locked the window again, and there was a hole in the wall, or how could I have gone through it? The drop was very bad indeed, for my hat was crushed out of shape. Poor father looked very much puzzled. But about the wine, I don't understand. Why did you do that? The answer was ready at my amazed lips, but I stopped it, for now at last I began to see. I began to see how, without that peculiar intent look with which the Spanish woman had handed me the wine glass, nor the menacing gesture with which she had thrust it upon me, the episode of the wine, that had seemed to me so threatening, became a mere empty courtesy, and indeed, separated from the sinister appearance of the moment, not one episode that had taken place in that extraordinary house which could not be explained away. I knew past any doubting that the Spanish woman had tried to bribe me, had tried to poison me, and failing that would have detained me by force if I had not got out of the window. And if I should tell him the whole adventure now, while it was so burning fresh in my own mind, with all its suggestive atmosphere, its eloquent details, couldn't I make him see it as I saw it? No. The Spanish woman had blown the magic breath of her plausibility, her ingenuity, upon the poor little substance of my true story, and had scattered it like ash. It was too much of an undertaking, even supposing it to be possible, to bring together the pieces again. And a vaguer but even more insistent voice prompted, Then suppose he does believe me. What will it mean to Johnny Montgomery? It seemed to me that I had been enough of a Spartan as far as that man was considered. I looked up at father and said, She frightened me. The Spanish woman frightened me, and so I ran away. How readily he took this up, showed me it was the explanation he expected. Yes, I know. It would be quite natural, he said soothingly. You have been much overwrought, and this infernal performance has thrown you into hysterics. But that wall, child, an awful drop. He laughed a little, but I could see how much moved he was. I hope to see that courage displayed in a worthier cause some time. I did not tell him how worthy the cause this time had been, how were it not for that bold leap of mine, 
there would have been no star witness for the people tomorrow. Something in my non-committal air seemed to touch Father, and make him still look anxiously at me. Of course, Dingley is going to have the matter investigated further. The woman will probably be arrested, if only on suspicion. But that evening he told me that Mr. Dingley had said nothing had been elicited from her that would warrant such a thing, and though Father seemed vexed and dissatisfied, he argued what could one do if there was no evidence to fasten upon. I did not answer. I knew it would be of no use, Mr. Dingley's explanations were so reasonable, but since I had talked with Father that morning, a piece of news had come to me which had only succeeded in strengthening my belief in the meaning of the Spanish woman's actions. This was brought me by Hallie, my envoy extraordinary, who had wormed it out of her mother who had got it from Mr. Ferguson. It seemed that on Saturday, just after Hallie had left the court, the Spanish woman had taken the witness stand and testified that she had been Rude's wife. Mr. Ferguson said this was ridiculous to suppose, yet no one, not even Mr. Dingley, had challenged her statement. She denied there had ever been any trouble between the two men. She said she had been interested in Mr. Montgomery as a woman might be who was old enough to be his mother, but that Rude had been her husband, and that she had loved and been faithful to him. She was wonderfully calm and convincing, Mr. Ferguson had said, and it looked at first as if her testimony would help the defense very much. But when Mr. Dingley's associate began cross-examining her, he seemed to turn her testimony inside out, and then it appeared that her evidence had been the worst thing possible for the prisoner. For if Rude had stood so firmly in Montgomery's way, the lawyer argued, that would give the very strongest motive for the shooting. "'Wasn't it dreadful?' Hallie exclaimed, when she wanted so much to help him to find she had only made things worse. Father said that when she realized how the evidence had been turned against him, she grew as white as death. From this I was able to understand better why the Spanish woman had been willing to take the terrible chance involved in sending for me to come to her house. She must have been desperate. But what I could not understand was— why had not Mr. Dingley challenged any of her testimony in the court? Why was it always his associate? I had a sense of things going on under the surface which even my father did not suspect. There was plenty of news flying about in plain hearing and sight, news of mob law preached from the custom-house steps, news of the double guard at the jail so there would be no second chance of escape. All these things I heard without their being able to rouse in me any special interest. My mind was fixed on the undercurrents. I couldn't explain them to Father, because I didn't understand them myself, only felt them. I felt as if I and all the rest had been handled, or being handled now, by a baffling and subtle power which one could not lay hands upon, because it seemed as if by magic to be able to erase the evidence of its action." There was no telling, I thought, what the Spanish woman might not manage to do. Yet even though I seemed to be safe, for hadn't she, in a fashion, conjured me out of Mr. Dingley's protection? Her power of persuasion, it was that which was her magic. Thus far father was the only one who seemed untouched by it. Even I had felt the pressure of it. Those appeals she had made when she had begged me to remember how Johnny Montgomery had implored me, as she said, 
with his look, to be silent. They had nearly undone me, and still they haunted me. But I don't believe he wanted it. I don't believe he would want anything so cowardly, and I know I do not want him at that price. This last reflection of mine astonished myself. What could I have meant by that? Oh, of course, that I did not want him released at that price. But was it probable that whether he were released or convicted, it would be in any way for my happiness? Suppose, with her dark power, she was going to be the enchantress tomorrow. Was she again going to scatter, in some unforeseen and uncombatable way, all my testimony, and triumphantly see the prisoner acquitted? Oughtn't I to be glad that he would be free? Ah, that was the strange part of it. For it appeared to me that in such an acquittal there would be something doubly guilty, something that would send him out of the court under a deeper shadow than ever he had found in prison, something that would pledge him to her for ever. It was that last thought of all I could least endure. End of chapter 7